Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we're going to be exploring philosophical idealism. With me is Dr. Bernardo Kastrup, one of the uh, most prominent proponents of philosophical idealism in contemporary days. He is a computer scientist and is the author of many books, including Rationalist, Spirituality, an exploration of the meaning of life and existence informed by logic and science. Why materialism is baloney, how true skeptics know there is no death, and fathom answers to life, the universe, and everything. Dreamed up reality, diving into the mind to uncover the astonishing hidden tale of nature. Meaning in absurdity. What bizarre phenomena can tell us about the nature of reality? Brief Peaks Beyond. Critical essays on metaphysics, neuroscience, free will, skepticism, and culture. More than allegory on religious myth, truth, and belief. And scheduled for publication in 2019, The Idea of the World a multidisciplinary argument for the mental nature of reality. Dr. Kastrup lives in the Netherlands, so this will be a Skype interview, and I will switch over to the Skype video now. Welcome, Bernardo. It's a, a pleasure to uh, be with you finally. I've been uh, aware of your work now for some time. And I have to say you are making a big impact because you've been publishing many articles now in Scientific American, taking the argument for philosophical idealism right into the heart of the scientific community. And I, I know you're getting some pushback there. Oh, sure. That's uh, that's part of the deal. I actually like it. I have a combative spirit, so I like to get some pushback and and be able to react and, and to argue. Uh, you know, I have a, uh, a combative, hard-nosed personality, so this, uh, this this kind of a reaction makes my day. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it's great because uh, I think what that interaction does is it's forcing you to refine your arguments and to become ever more precise and detailed in handling the the various objections. But I think what we need to do to begin with is to define what exactly you mean by philosophical idealism, because as I look at the history of philosophy, I see there are many different oh, shades and colors of idealism. Oh, yeah. First, we should define what what we mean technically by idealism, because something some people think that it's about ideals, mm -hmm. an idealist life in which you follow ideals or whatever. That's ethical idealism. What we mean uh, by metaphysical idealism, which is my position, is that the world is made of ideas. It should actually be called ideaism, but it doesn't sound very good. So idealism stuck. Uh, the idea that the, the idea here is that the world is fundamentally mental, that matter is a quality uh, of experience, a certain modality of experience that we call perception, uh, and that all, 
all there is is mentality, even though not your personal mentality alone, not my personal mentality alone, but mentality at large, uh, uh, so to say. So that's the core of idealism. Uh, but there are many versions. Uh, there is what people call subjective idealism, which is the idea that uh, the notion uh, that uh, the, the physical world out there is a is a is dependent upon my own mentation that it arises as an interaction between myself as a mind as a psyche an individual psyche uh, and and something that may be out there or maybe not but that the world is uh, is uh, um, relational to me it's a it's a product of my own mentation and then your world is a product of your mentation and so on and an example of that would be Barclay's idealism there is also the so-called objective idealism which is the idea that there is a world out there, independent of me, independent of you, but that world is also made of thoughts. It's also made of mentation uh, as such. And, and the way that mentation appears to me from my point of view is what I call the physical world that surrounds me. Mm -hmm. And there is absolute idealism. There's all kinds of things, variations. But uh, the fundamental notion behind all this is that mentality is all there is. Perhaps not our, our personal mentality alone. Uh, the, the earth goes beyond the horizon, so to say, uh, um, but mentality nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Well, if we take that point of view, which which you do, then I, I, it would seem to me that the implication is that the laws of physics are that we know and are, are very well established at this point, many of them at least, uh, those are actually laws of mind, laws of consciousness. That's right. So uh, I take a... a my position is both subjective and objective. Uh, I think the physical world, as I see it, is a product uh, partially of my own mentation. But I do grant that there is a world out there, independent of my personal mentation, independent of your personal mentation. Uh, and But that, that world is also uh, constituted by the thoughts of a mind at large. And that those thoughts of mind at large appear to us in the form of physical nature, which uh, which unfolds according to certain uh, uh, patterns and regularities that we've come to call uh, the laws of physics, which suggests that the thoughts of mind at large unfold with certain regularity, certain reliable uh, regularity that can be predicted, uh, can be uh, even used for the benefit of technology. If we know how to unfold, we can we can play on it and 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 get the effects we expect when we build our technology. Uh, I don't think that contradicts uh, uh, the intuition behind idealism at all. It only means that uh, the thoughts of nature at large did not evolve in the context of a planetary ecosystem and thereby became very reactive, like our own thoughts and emotions, which are very reactive. Uh, mind at large didn't undergo that process. Uh, so it doesn't need to be unpredictable and reactive like we are. It can very well unfold according to, to clear regularities. Moreover, even the notion of time, which is embedded in what we consider to be uh, uh, um, things that are predictable or unpredictable, even that is is relative to the mind you're, you're talking about. For us, uh, uh, a time span of uh, of an hour is, is significant. Maybe from the point of view of mind at large, a time span of 13.8 billion years is just 
the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why it appears so regular, because it, it hasn't had time yet to do anything <laughs> different, uh, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So there are many, many ways to approach and to think about this. Well, the most famous of the idealistic philosophers, I think, would be Bishop Barclay, to whom you referred earlier. How does your position differ from his? He, he was an Anglican bishop who ultimately argued that uh, what you're calling mind at large is the mind of God. Yeah. Well, the, the problem the idealist always faces, there are three key problems the idealist uh, faces. Uh, I'll, I'll list them. One is, we all seem to inhabit the same universe, the same world out there. If it's all in mind, how come is that so? Uh, uh, if it's all happening in my mind and the world I perceive is a product of my own mentation, how come you would report to be living on the same planet Earth uh, with the same world events that we both uh, seem to be witnessing? Um, that's problem number one. Problem number two is... Uh, if the world is mental, why can't we just change nature by wishing it to be different, by an act of imagination? Nature doesn't seem to care what we want or don't want. It just unfolds the way it does, very independently of us. And the problem number three is uh, clearly subjective experience is very highly, tightly correlated with what we call brain function. Uh, uh, if you drink alcohol, you put a substance in your brain and yeah, your subjective experience changes a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, general anesthesia is, uh, is another big example of uh, psychoactive drugs, trauma to the head. If, if one puts a bullet through somebody else's head, well, something seems to happen in the inner world of that person. Um, so that's the third problem. Uh, Barclay faced all three of them but didn't necessarily address them very explicitly. Uh, faced with the first problem, which is uh, uh, how come there seems to be a, a, an independent world out there that we all seem to inhabit, his answer was, well, when nobody's looking at it, there's always somebody that's looking at, at it. God is always around in the quad, that, uh, <laughs> like that uh, limerick. Yeah. Uh, um, God is maintaining the existence of the world because God is always looking at it. Um, and from that answer, you see what Barclay was thinking. What he's thinking is that uh, the world exists only insofar as the contents of perception. So if nobody's looking at it, nobody's perceiving it, he has a problem because the world we seem to inhabit together would then vanish. Mm -hmm. It would disappear if nobody's looking at it, at it. So he needed God to be looking at it mm -hmm. in order to maintain that context, that environment that we co-inhabit. Um, I think that there is more to the world out there than just our perceptions, uh, than just the product of observation. I think there is something out there that has that's completely autonomous and independent of our personal observations. That thing out there that is independent of our observations is still a great thought. But that thought, qualitatively, is very different from the contents of our perception. Uh, uh, in the same way that uh, if uh, uh, a scientist, a neuroscientist, would put you under a brain scanner and observe your brain activity, that brain activity that the scientist would observe uh, would be the extrinsic appearance, the image of your conscious inner life from the point of view of the scientist. Mm -hmm. But qualitatively, images on a brain scanner have very little to do with how you feel from within. Mm -hmm. 
your feelings of love and fear and the perceptions of the world around you, the noises of the brain scanner that you hear qualitatively, all that would appear to the brain scientist as images on a brain scanner. But qualitatively, there would be very little similarity between the two. I think on what we see when we look out to the universe is the, quote, brain scan of God's thoughts. But in the same way that what the scientist sees on the brain scanner has little to do with your inner life, the physical world we see has little to do qualitatively with how it feels like to be mind at large, to how it feels like to think what mind at large thinks. What we see is an extrinsic appearance, a projected image. Uh, but those thoughts that have little to do with the qualities of this image are really out there. They are really out there. They exist independently of being observed. And I think that's the key difference between what I put forward and what uh, Barclay puts forward. Mm -hmm. I, what, what, what I say it has much more to do with Schopenhauer's metaphysics, which unfortunately is considered untenable by many today. I think it's an error. I'm going to publish a paper about this soon. Um, but it has much more to do with Schopenhauer's uh, objective idealism than, than Barclay's subjective idealism. Well, now Schopenhauer, to my understanding, would fall into the tradition known as German idealism. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Which, Hegel, and Hegel, Kant, uh, Schelling. Correct. Fichte. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th these philosophers, uh, I think, took more of a, a softer stance towards uh, idealism than uh, Bishop Barclay did. Um. I don't want to sound too biased and partial. I think yeah. they took a more coherent uh, stance. I think uh, Barclay's intuition was right on. Uh, but by considering the contents of perception themselves irreducible, he ran into trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, so he needed to appeal to divinity. Uh, uh, who could then perceive the world with the same qualities that we perceive in order to maintain the existence of a context that we inhabit. I think that was a, that, that was a problem for him. Schopenhauer went about it in a, in a, in a different way. He said, well, uh, just like for a human being, there is something a human being looks like from an outside perspective. Mm -hmm. Like I look to you like what you see on your screen right now, but from within, it's qualitatively different. I have an inner life. Mm -hmm. From within, there is an, uh, another angle, another angle to see what it is to be me. Uh, and Schopenhauer extrapolated that, extrapolated that to the whole world and said, you know what? When I introspect, I find volitional states as the core of my being. You know, when I, when I get behind what I think, what I perceive, and I go really to the depth of my being, what I find is the will, the will to live, uh, a compulsion, a, a desire to live and, and, and achieve something. It's more or less blind. It's not self-reflective. Uh, um, it's not metacognitive, uh, but it's some kind of raw volition, phenomenal states, mental states, conscious mental states below the reach of metacognition. And then he said, if that's the case for me, then I should understand the world based on then based on what I know directly. And what I know directly is my will. So behind the world I perceive around me, there is also the will. Uh, so the essence of the world around us, behind the appearances, behind the, the, the representations, as he put it, uh, the intuitive representations or the perceptual representations, is the will. 
there are volitional states behind uh, all that. Mm-hmm. That's a step that Berkeley never made. He stopped at their representations uh, as the absolute, as the, as the irreducible thing. And he needed God to perceive the world in order to maintain the representations there. Schopenhauer doesn't need that. Schopenhauer says, well, the representation is just what the will outside me looks like to me. But if I were if I were not looking at the world, there would still be the will. There would still be those volitional states. And I'm very much with Schopenhauer there. Well, it seems to suggest then that uh, just as we have feelings and uh, volitional states uh, when we look inside of ourselves, that uh, these are we think of these as subjective. But if the uh, whole of all of reality is mental, then our inner states are just as real as uh, things we perceive. Absolutely, and 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 you know. What drives us to live? What, what is it that drives us to, to act in the world, uh, uh, to, to, to achieve things, not only to survive, but to carry out our projects, uh, to, to attend to our passions? Uh, um, it, it's, it, it's volitional states, uh, very basic, raw, fundamental volitional states that, that drive us. And the same way that we seem to be going somewhere and trying to do something, if you look at the universe, the universe around us, it seems to be trying to go somewhere it, it is a dynamic system it is not static it's 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 moving it's evolving it's going somewhere it seems to be trying something as blindly as it may be doing so it seems to be trying to go somewhere uh, it is not such a step uh, of intuition to imagine that behind this there may also be volitional states not deliberate not metacognitive, not thought through, uh, not planned like we do. I think this this level of of metaconsciousness or, or conscious metacognition or self-reflection, whatever you want to call it, uh, is a product of of evolution by natural selection having led to us as organisms in the universe. I think the universe at, at large probably does not have that. Um, I mean, there, there's every indication that it doesn't have that because it, it unfolds with such regularity. But the fact that it does unfold suggests that uh, the basis of it, behind the appearances, the thing in itself, as Kant called it, or the world in itself, as Schopenhauer would prefer to call it, since Schopenhauer denied separate things. Uh, Well, uh, let's not get into that. Uh, That that world in itself um, seems to be driven, it's not such a big step, uh, by evolution of states as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, in uh, one of your earlier books, Why Materialism is Baloney, you uh, address directly what what the problems are with materialism. There seem to be some irreconcilable contradictions that the materialist metaphysics, which is certainly in the Western world, I, I would say the dominant uh, ethos, of, of humanity, uh, but it leads to uh, certain paradoxes that it, it seems unable to get around. Uh, yeah, it's it. <laughs> uh, don't even get me started on that, uh, Jeff. Um, let's start from the most basic one. What does materialism basically say? Materialism says that, uh, okay, I have thoughts. I have uh, conscious states, phenomenal states. It, there is something it is like to be me. But I deny that, and I say all there is is some matter uh, that is outside and independent of consciousness. There is nothing it's like to be that matter. 
it's some essentially dead stuff mm-hmm. and specific arrangements of that, that that dead stuff when it comes together in a specific way voila it creates me it creates my phenomenal states it creates uh, the qualities of my experiential inner life in other words everything i i know because all i know is qualities everything else is an abstraction yeah. how does that come about uh, l- look at the steps in thinking that that we've made here implicitly we've said i start from my conscious states but then i say they are not fundamental i can reduce them i can explain them in terms of something else that is not consciousness well that's something else that's not consciousness is an abstraction of my consciousness that's where it arises yeah. a five-year-old kid does not have that abstraction a five-year-old kid lives in a world of pure qualities. All there is is experience. There's nothing else for a five-year-old kid. Uh, but afterwards, we created this abstraction. Well, there might be something out there that is not experiential. We call it matter. Mm-hmm. So that's an abstraction of consciousness. And then what do we do? We try to reduce consciousness to an abstraction of consciousness. I mean, this is never going to work. It's like trying to reduce the painter to the painting. Uh, but the painting requires the pre-existence of the painter even to be talked about. <laughs> so we we are like chasing our own tails at light speed, and we are and we call this the hard problem of consciousness. And we hope that one day it will be solved. It will never be solved. It's it's an artifact of a of of, of a faulty way of thinking. It's faulty logic. Uh, we will never bridge the gap between abstract abstract quantitative properties like mass, charge, momentum, spin, geometric relationships between subatomic particles, Mm -hmm. and what it feels like to bite into an apple, what it feels like to have a bellyache, what it feels like to fall in love or be disappointed, what it feels like to look at this screen right now. How can we bridge the gap from qualities, what it is like to, to a completely abstract quantitative property uh, uh, that you can't even visualize because the moment you visualize it, it's, uh, it's already qualitative. Uh, uh, that you, the best you can do is to imagine it as, as, as mathematical equations flowing in some kind of empty, empty space. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can you bridge that gap? We will never bridge get that gap because there's an essential fault. It is, it is an essential, um, recursive step here. Consciousness creates an abstraction and tries to explain itself and reduce itself to its own abstractions. It's never going to work. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, another alternative that seems to be popular with people is panpsychism, the idea that actually matter is conscious. Yeah, you see, once you're backed against a wall of, ins- of an insoluble problem, because it's a problem that doesn't exist, you created it yourself, it's like a faulty short circuit in people's heads. Uh, once they're faced with that and it's insoluble, uh, you start looking around and find your way to, to, to a way out of this. Doesn't matter how inelegant uh, it mm-hmm. might be. You see, panpsychism still grants that there is such a thing as matter. Uh, there are many forms of panpsychism. Some of, some of the versions of panpsychism that are out there are essentially indistinguishable from idealism. So when I say panpsychism, mm-hmm. I am implicitly excluding those versions of panpsychism that we should better call idealism. We just want to use a new name for it because it sounds cooler in an academic paper instead of you writing about something that Barclay already talked about a couple of hundred years ago. You're talking about something cool and new, panpsychism and cosmopsychism. It's the same stuff that mm-hmm. people were talking about a couple of hundred years ago. So leave that aside. Let's talk about the 
formulations of panpsychism that actually grant that there are non-phenomenal properties. In other words, that there are aspects of the world that are not experiential. Uh, what they basically say is that, okay, there is matter. Matter has some, some non-experiential properties like mass, charge, momentum, spin, there is space-time, there is a scaffolding of space-time. And by the way, consciousness is also a fundamental part of the universe. You can't reduce it to the rest, it's fundamental, mm -hmm. but it goes side by side with the rest. There is a sense in which what these versions of panpsychism basically say is that uh, consciousness is fundamentally encompassed by matter, that the boundaries of matter are also the boundaries of consciousness in the mm -hmm. sense that an electron is bound in space-time as a physical entity and within that electron there is consciousness. Within those space-time bounds there are phenomenal states. There is what it is likeness, uh, uh, conscious states. Um, what I say is the opposite. What I say is uh, matter is encompassed by consciousness. Within consciousness there is a modality of experiences namely perceptions, that we've given a name to. And we give, that name is matter. Mm -hmm. We gave that name to certain patterns and regularities within a certain modality of experience, perceptions, within consciousness. It is consciousness that encompasses matter as one of its modes of operation, not matter encompassing consciousness as one of its fundamental properties. Mm -hmm. Now, most people, to my understanding, uh, the average person, not a trained philosopher, is sort of uh, intuitively are dualists. They they seem to recognize that their inner world uh, is distinct and separate from the outer world. That's fair enough. Uh, uh, there are certain dualities uh, uh, in the world that are undeniable. Uh, there is a, a duality between my inner life, in other words, my thoughts, my feelings, uh, even some of my intuitions, my imagination, uh, and a certain category of my experiences my perceptions, uh, that don't seem to obey my volition very well. Uh, otherwise, the world would be a very different place uh, uh, today. Um, so there is a duality there. Uh, my, I, I try to explain this in terms of the uh, psychological uh, phenomenon that we call dissociation. Mm. Um, my inner life is dissociated from the mentality that underlies the world around me, and that's why I have no direct volitional control over what happens in the world outside me, because I'm dissociated from it. I would even go as far and say that what we call life, biological bodies, are the extrinsic appearance, the image of dissociative processes in mind at large. I am a dissociative process in mind at large. That's why I feel like an individual separate from the rest. Mm. Uh, you are another. And the way these dissociative processes look like from across their dissociative boundary is what we call life. So there is this duality inside and outside enforced by dissociative boundaries, in my view. Uh, the essential duality behind the metaphysics of substance dualism is more specific. What it says is not only that there is a duality in general, but that, that there is an ontological duality, mm -hmm. that there are two fundamental kinds of thing or kinds of substance, if you will. Even these names are inappropriate, but bear with me. One is mentality and the other one is matter. And both are irreducible to one another. Uh, you can't explain one in terms of another, but they somehow interact. They somehow talk to one another. They somehow cross-influence one another. And that's what leads to the world as it is. Well, there is nothing prima facie incoherent about this. Mm 
um, what I would argue, but there are some problems with it. Interactionism has some problems, like, you know, in the physical world, uh, when there is an interaction that leads to, to a phenomenal change in the configuration of the world and the states of the world, energy seems to flow. And, well, where, where does that energy come from if mind is interacting with the body? There are some answers to this, but there's some difficulties there. Another difficulty is that, uh, as far as we can ascertain uh, on the basis of the scientific method, the physical world seems to be causally closed. Uh, we haven't found a single instance of a natural phenomenon uh, that can't be explained in terms of certain physical dynamics um, whenever we manage to to to, to pin it down. Yeah. So there are answers to that as well, but it's another problem. Uh, but for me, the key problem, not the problem, but the key argument against this substance dualism, this ontological, fundamental ontological duality that people postulate is that it is unnecessary. We do not need to postulate anything other than mind as a, as, as a category mm -hmm. to make sense of reality. Because for one, all we experience is mentality by definition. If it falls within the field of experience, it's mental because experience is mental. Uh, uh, all we need is to explain why we seem to inhabit the same world, why this world is not uh, acquiescent to our direct volition, and why there seems to be this correlation between measurable brain, brain activity and, and inner, inner conscious life. I think we can explain all three on the basis of mentality alone. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we need to, to postulate something that is not mentality to make sense of everything. Well, one of the reasons I find idealism so attractive is, as a parapsychologist, I'm very well aware of 150 years of empirical data that uh, mainstream science, uh, for example, Scientific American being uh, a, a, a representative, tries to sweep under the rug, pretend that this data doesn't exist, and, uh, largely because of their metaphysical biases. Uh, there certainly are extreme metaphysical biases uh, in the world. Uh, you named Scientific American, so let me put in a good word for Scientific American. Mm -hmm. um, they have published a lot of stuff from me. Yes, they um, have. And this stuff that they publish from me is is not friendly at all to metaphysical materialism. On the contrary, it's, it's very antagonistic. Mm -hmm. um, so there is at least some level of open-mindedness, at least by some people at Scientific American. I know some of my stuff in Scientific American has had to go up all the way through the editorial ladders to the very highest levels yeah. uh, um, before being published. But that I see also as a positive because it mm -hmm. means even the top-level guys have seen it and, and said, okay, we published this. Um, so good word for them. Doesn't mean, Jeff, that... There aren't biases. Biases mm -hmm. is, 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 is part of, of being human, I think. We are biased by our culture. Um, we are unable to make sense of the complexity of the world around us on our own and form an entirely personal judgment. We have to form networks of trust. And when you have the, the momentum of the entire culture and the specialists uh, that uh, seem to hold the banner of legitimacy uh, 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 behind that culture, saying that this is what makes more sense. It's very hard not to be biased about that. I, I know because I once was biased about that, and it took quite some hard work to and you know to get out of that. Um, that bias certainly affects. Uh, uh, philosophers. Mm -hmm. I mean, idealism. When I started doing this, 
eight, nine years ago, I mean, idealism was so far out, so far out. Uh, today, it's a very different story. It's mm -hmm. such a short period of time, and it's already a different story. People talk openly about idealism now. There are academic conferences or closed workshops, at least, uh, uh, about idealism. I was in one of them uh, last year. Um, so it, it, it's changing. I think the same thing might happen with parapsychology. Not being in the field of parapsychology, whatever else I say from this point on is dubious because it may reflect my, my own biases. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it doesn't help that a lot of people who proclaim themselves to be doing parapsychological work are not doing serious work. And I think that brings harm to everybody who is doing serious work. Uh, in philosophy, that's less of a problem. Because uh, it's all out there. Your argument is all out there. Uh, when you're doing experimental science, now there is an element of trust. Uh, now, what are your protocols? What are you really divulging? You know, uh, it, it, it's more complex, uh, I think. Uh, I, I personally, and I'll be very open and honest with you, um, I do think parapsychological phenomena happen. I tend to give more cachet to the simpler ones, uh, um, Rupert Sheldrake uh, talks about very simple parapsychological phenomena that uh, he claims to happen all the time, like the sense of being stared at mm -hmm. or telepathy with your uh, pets. Um, I'll, I'll stick my neck out and I'll tell you, the sense of being stared at, I'm pretty sure it happens. Mm -hmm. I've been on both sides of that so frequently. Um, I, I've seen, I, I've had personal examples of, uh, of um, uh, dreams that uh, turn out to convey real information. There is one example in my life that was very dramatic about it. So I do believe these things happen. And nonetheless, I have a bias against parapsychology, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I'm supposed to be friendly, <laughs> well, and I am, because my philosophy opens the door for it, but yes. yet, yeah. It, well, you did publish a, a book in which you go into some detail about uh, various UFO incidents and and suggest that these are actually very powerful doorways through which we can look into the mind. That's true. That was my third book, uh, Meaning and Absurdity. Um, notice that I... I I describe these events as psychological events. Yeah. Um, but of course, as an idealist, for me, everything is a psychological event because there is only mind. The question is, is it an individual psychological event within your individual personal mind? Or is it a psychological event that transcends uh, the boundaries of the dissociative complex that you are? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's always psychological. So from that perspective, that book is it gives me some room for maneuver. I can be slightly ambiguous uh, uh, in that book. Uh, I can talk about all that without really, uh, you know, signing a contract saying it's all parapsychological. Yeah. Um, but I do think parapsychological phenomena happen, and uh, and I think that because of personal experience. Yeah. Well, when we talk about individual consciousness, you use various metaphors, I, I think, to describe how an individual consciousness can exist within this larger mind at large that you that you refer to. You talk about it being folded in 
on itself or disassociated in, in, in different ways. Uh, to me, these are almost like poetic descriptions. It's, we cannot, I don't think, arrive at a, a mechanistic description of how an individual consciousness forms within mind at large. But it does seem to me, as, as a parapsychologist, that the boundaries of individual consciousness are, I would call them leaky. They're not absolute. I think that's a, that's a great way to put that. Um, the metaphor that comes closest to a mechanistic explanation would be dissociation. That's the one I use in my academic publications, in my papers and in my latest book, which is a fairly academic book. The, the one I think you, you, you read recently. Yes. Um, and, and it's the one that you can describe most directly and, and, and most objectively because, you know, what is, uh, 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 okay. The, 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 integrated nature of our psyche arises from cognitive associations, right? It's a thought that leads to an emotion, which evokes a memory, which leads to an action, and that therefore certain perceptions. Each step in this, in, in this chain is a cognitive association. There is some kind of implicit logic that leads from one experience to another, uh, a memory to a thought, a thought to an emotion, and so on and so forth. And dissociation happens when these associative links somehow break and they form separate complexes in such a way that from within a certain complex, you cannot access an experience that belongs to another complex, like a memory that belongs to another altar, which is the psychiatric language, because you don't have that cognitive bridge uh, that associates one to the other. And a person suffering from dissociative identity disorder, we have multiple of these altars that have separate in their lives. And actually, uh, neuroimaging has shown that these dissociative processes look like something uh, mm. under a brain scanner, which is nice. The study by Yolanda Schlumpf uh, here in the Netherlands in 2014. And there was a study in Germany in 2015 that sh showed that uh, there was this woman with multiple uh, dissociative uh, alters, and some of them claimed to be blind. And uh, scientists hooked up this woman to an EEG. Was it an MEG? Uh, it was an EEG. And... Um, when the blind alter was in control, there was no brain activity uh, in the visual cortex. Mm -hmm. And when a sighted alter reassumed control, then there was uh, activity in the visual cortex, even though the woman had her eyes open all the time. So uh, these these dissociative processes do happen. Mm -hmm. They have been proven. So we can describe them in a more or less mathematical way through graph theory, you know, these cognitive associations and then model the dissociation as uh, some edges disappearing in that, in that graph. And, but even if we can't go very far in that mechanistic description, uh, we have empirical proof that whatever it is, it does happen. Mm -hmm. And it has exactly the effect that it needs to have to enable me to use it <laughs> uh, 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 to explain how individual psyches form within one universal consciousness. Um, another more poetic metaphor I would consider to be the whirlpool metaphor, uh, the idea of individual minds as whirlpools in, in a universal stream of consciousness. You know, there's nothing to the whirlpool but the stream itself, and yet you can point at the whirlpool and say, there is a whirlpool. You can even delineate its boundaries and say, here's where the whirlpool ends, just like you can delineate our bodies and say, here's where the body ends. Um, it looks like something stable, a whirlpool, very identifiable, and yet there is nothing to it but the stream. In the same way that I would claim that there is nothing to our personal minds as but mind at large. 
even though we can identify us as individual beings, like you can identify a whirlpool, that's more poetic. Um, I use other metaphors. I use a metaphor of a collapse, which is the one in more than allegory. Um, I, I think it helps to when when you're communicating through metaphors, pe- there's a risk that people take the metaphor too literally. Mm-hmm. They lose sight of what the finger is pointing to and they fixate on the finger. The best way to go a- around it is to provide as many metaphors as possible so people can distill what's common across these metaphors as the real thing that you're pointing to and discard the rest just as a communication vehicle, packaging that you can throw away and not get too fixated on it. Mm-hmm. Well, you are drawing quite a bit on uh, data coming out of neuroscience as a way to inform your idealistic position. And I think that's new because practically all neuroscientists, to my knowledge, uh, with a few exceptions, uh, have uh, uh, felt that the data of neuroscience argues very strongly in behalf of the materialistic uh, perspective. Why did they do that? Well, they do that because there are these very strong correlations between measurable uh, patterns of brain activity and what subjects report to be experiencing. Uh, but then they conflate this correlation with causation and they say, oh, that means that brain activity, physical brain activity, must generate experience. Well, that would explain the correlations, but it's not the only thing that explains the correlations. What I put forward is that what we call the brain, the physical object, is just the extrinsic appearance of inner dissociative processes. In other words, it's what dissociation in universal mind looks like from across its dissociative boundary, from, from the outside, so to say. Now, if, if a brain and its activity is what my inner life looks like to you, of course it will correlate. It's the image of it. Mm-hmm. It's what it looks like from your perspective. It doesn't mean that matter is creating my experiences. It means that matter is the image of my experiences from your point of view. I mean, we don't say that uh, uh, visible flames create combustion. Visible flames is what the microscopic process of combustion, oxidation, looks like from outside. Mm -hmm. Lightning is what atmospheric electric discharge looks like. We don't say that lightning causes atmospheric electric discharge. It's just what it looks like. It's the extrinsic appearance of the process. I would say my brain, my brain activity is what my inner life looks like from your point of view, from, from the point of view of a neuroscientist. But neuroscientists don't have much of a philosophical imagination they seize, uh, uh, they, they, all they can see when they realize that there are these correlations is this hypothesis of causation. Uh, if they were just a little bit more creative, just a little bit more philosophical imagination, they would see that there are many other possibilities here. Mm-hmm. Well, and the example that you just gave of disassociation of uh, people with multiple personality disorder is really striking. The, the case of blindness is, is particularly interesting because there uh, it does seem to be a very clear-cut example of uh, something that is uh, mental controlling uh, the activity of uh, the neurons in the brain. At least there is a clear correlation uh, there, right? Uh, uh, one blind alter assuming control from a sighted alter and brain activity in the visual cortex uh, vanishing. is a very clear correlation. To me, it's not surprising at all. It's necessary because you see, if measurable brain activity is what inner life looks like, 
if in your inner life suddenly you're blind, then that should look like something. It should like should look like a lack of brain activity in the visual cortex, mm -hmm. which is words we made up to describe that image, visual cortex, brain activity. These are all words we made up uh, uh, to refer to components or patterns in that image. Mm -hmm. But that image is just what the inner life, the conscious inner life of the subject looks like, I would, I would argue. Well, another point you make, which I think is a very strong one, is, is that when we look at uh, the literature on near-death experience, where brain activity is uh, either minimal or non-existent, um, people experience very powerful inner experiences, life-changing inner experiences. Uh, I think the strongest thing that we can say about this, because you see, there, there are lots of people who research NDEs, near-death experiences, yeah. and, and that's their focus. That's what they look at, look at. And there is a, a whole lot of bunch of people now in the last few years that research psychedelics, mm -hmm. and that's all they look at, uh, look like. Uh, um, and then there is a whole bunch of other people who research other things, other, other types of impairment of brain activity. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look across all these examples of phenomena that uh, that are associated with an impairment of brain activity, an impairment of brain function, you recognize the same pattern, and and that broad pattern is, is what I think is what I think is the strongest evidence here uh, in NDEs. Many NDEs, at least the classical definition of NDEs, you would have no uh, um, uh, uh, um, no, no heartbeat. There would be no circulation. So there would at least have to be a dramatic decrease uh, uh, in metabolic function in the brain. Uh, if not a complete cessation, at least a very significant increase. And then it becomes difficult to explain how the richness, the complexity, the structure, the intensity of your conscious inner life could increase uh, uh, together with this dramatic decrease in metabolic activity. Fine. But guess what? The same thing happens with psychedelics. Um, when you take psychedelics, it has been shown now by a number of studies that your brain activity reduces compared to the placebo baseline. But your inner life explodes in richness, in intensity. I mean, nobody who has never had a psychedelic experience, a full-blown psychedelic experience, can fathom... Uh, there are no words to explain uh, how intense, I mean, even these words, intense, rich, I mean, it means nothing, uh, can fathom what a, what a change it is in your inner life. Uh, and it turns out that, uh, I'll list some examples now, I, I have a, a paper published on this, and also an essay on Scientific American on this, many other examples of the same pattern at work. Um, pilots undergoing G-force training uh, went through uh, 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 in, in large centrifuges, forces, uh, blood is forced out of their brain, they pass out, they have memorable dreams. Well, why should you have memorable dreams when blood is drained out of your brain, mm -hmm. right? Where, where does that metabolic energy come, that metabolic activity come from? Um, teenagers worldwide playing this dangerous choking game of right. partial strangulation because they get a high, they get very high, intense, transpersonal experiences because there is less blood available to the brain. Or research done in 2013 in Brazil, I think, they studied uh, spirit mediums that claimed to, they call it psychography, they, they claimed to write down information coming from some kind of transcendent source. And they put these mediums on their brain scanners uh, with controls, placebo conditions, and so on. And it turned out that uh, 
uh, during a trance, these mediums can um, write much more complex text. You can score text according to a, an objective measure of complexity. They could write down much more complex text than when not entranced, uh, but their brain activity was shown to reduce in all the key areas of the brain that would be normally engaged in writing more complex text. Mm-hmm. Uh, the activity in all those areas was reduced. Um, uh, there was a study in two years ago, Vietnam War uh, uh, veterans who had brain damage. They studied them, uh, and they were much more uh, liable to having uh, spiritual experiences than people without brain damage. Or a study in Italy in 2010 published in Neuron, uh, people were studied before and after surgery for the removal of brain tumors that always causes some collateral damage in surrounding tissue. They were scored for uh, feelings of self-transcendence before and after surgery. And after surgery, self-transcendence increased uh, significantly. So there is this consistent pattern associating impairment of brain function with certain types of impair- impairment of brain function, not all types, of course. Otherwise, you know, it would be very easy to have a spiritual experience. Certain types of impairment of brain function consistently correlate with enriched inner life and usually with a transcendence of the ordinary notion of self. In other words, you think of yourself much, you, you, you identify with a much larger subset of the universe, sometimes with the universe as a whole, uh, than you do under normal conditions. NDEs are one example in this very broad pattern. It's not enough to shoot down NDEs to get away from what this pattern is telling us. You'd have to shoot down psychography, uh, psychedelics, choking, uh, a G4, G-lock, uh, poof, brain damage. You, you, you know, now go ahead and try that. Try to make sense of all that, this broad pattern based on a materialist perspective. From an idealist perspective, however, it makes a lot of sense. And most types of brain damage, we just reduce the uh, mental contents within the dissociative boundary. In other words, our inner life would be, would become more poor. Uh, but certain types of brain function impairment would affect the dissociative mechanism itself, rendering the dissociative boundary more porous, as you mm-hmm. as you alluded to. It would impair the dissociation itself, not only the contents of the dissociation. And what does it mean to impair dissociation? Well, it means that your conscious inner life gets enriched mm-hmm. because it's less isolated. It can reach beyond its uh, ordinary boundaries. Your sense of self goes beyond uh, its ordinary contents, uh, so to say. And you've written quite extensively uh, about the idea that we have the capacity to explore this mind at large. I think we do. Um, I I tried this myself uh, uh, some years ago. Um, If we are indeed just this, just, if we are indeed dissociative, uh, 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 complexes um, in a universal consciousness. Can we fool around with these dissociative mechanisms through techniques of introspection, uh, psychoactive substances, meditation, ritual? I mean, uh, this this rituals in traditional cultures in which people are subject to extreme exertion, extreme uh, uh, physiological uh, stress 
what is that doing? It's putting stress on normal brain function. Maybe it's putting stress on the dissociative mechanisms themselves. So you go beyond uh, the usual dissociative boundaries. I think it's possible. Uh, it's not, yeah, I don't want to go out and recommend doing this. I, th I think it's tricky to do that. Um, potentially dangerous to do that. Uh, but certainly possible. And if it's done responsibly under good safety protocols, uh, I think it's worthwhile pursuing, even as an area of scientific investigation. Mm -hmm. Well, um, let me push you on just one other point, and, and that is I know you have argued that uh, from the idealistic perspective, one can logically, rationally uh, develop the argument that there exists in, in, I don't know if you mean the, the larger consciousness itself or within that larger consciousness, a, an omniscient, omnipotent, ever present, uh, being. Yes. Uh, these three words are appropriate. Uh, omniscient because it's conscious of all that's going on. If you include its own dissociative complexes, you and I, for instance, um, um, Omnipotent in the sense that whatever happens in the universe happens as a consequence of its activity, but not in the sense that it can premeditate what it's going to do next, because I think premeditation, premeditation is a higher mental function. It's a metacognitive function. What psychologists, well, Maybe you should explain what metacognitive. Well, no, forget about it. I mean, I know you know what you what, what I mean, but at least you've been very clear that the, these metacognitive functions are properties of human beings, not necessarily a property of mind at large. Correct, and and that's what I think. Uh, I have my reasons to think that. Uh, we can go into that later if you want. Um, but when we say you know omniscient, omnipotent, uh, people tend to associate that with some kind of intelligent metacognitive god that has a plan and it's going about uh, executing its plan and it's checking to see if things are going as it has planned and adjusting things. No, that's not at all what I think. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, there is an omniscient, omnipotent mind in the sense that it's conscious of everything by definition because the world is uh, the unfolding of its conscious states and it's omnipotent because whatever happens happens uh, 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 by virtue of the fact that it's unfolding its conscious states mm -hmm. but in that sense alone not in the sense of uh, an, an entity that premeditates and 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 is deliberate about what it's doing uh, um a, a, a description that's probably more apt but also problematic would be Schopenhauer's. Uh, Schopenhauer would say it's just a blind will, mm. uh, a blind striving, a blind volitional states that are grasping towards something to satiate its endless uh, uh, desires or its endless uh, uh, need for who knows what. Mm. Um, so that would be, th th there's a problem with this description too. Uh, I don't subscribe to this description either, but it's closer to the mark, uh, I think, than than um, a calculating God. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, <laughs> I was about to end the interview, but this is so interesting. <laughs> 
I, I want to just pursue a little bit because in your book, more than allegory, you you also suggest there's a transcendent realm and that it can be explored through uh, religious myths uh, that. Uh, from the point of view of um, a modern scientific sensibility are, are kind of nonsensical fantasies, but you believe that uh, for certain people, some of these myths help open up a, uh, a, a portal into a, a realm of transcendence. Yes. So first of all, before I even begin to answer, what do I mean by transcendence? Transcendence is transcendence or transcendent realm is that which is beyond the reach of your ability to perceive or to introspect into metacognitively. Uh, it's mental, but it's beyond the boundaries of your ordinary personal mentality. And it may be accessible to you in the form of the inanimate universe out there, the stars and galaxies and all that. But what you really want is to know the mental inner life behind that. What is behind that image? What is behind that Experience, what it feels like to be the universe, the inanimate universe as a whole. That's that's the transcendent realm. It's the thoughts underlying the cosmos, so to say, which appear to you as the cosmos. But what is it behind it? What is the thing in itself, the cosmos in itself that appears to you as the contents of perception? That's the transcendent realm. That mentality uh, is the transcendent realm. Um, there is nothing in our models of nature that would suggest that uh, the cognitive abilities of higher primates uh, should have evolved enough for us to have a literal model, a literal description of what's going on. Why would we think that? Why would monkeys be able to, to have a literal one-to-one -one description and model of what's happening in nature? I mean, ants certainly don't, right? Earthworms don't. I don't think my cats have that model either. So why would I think that I can do that, right? Why would my metacognitive intellect, I'm using Schopenhauer's word now, my intellect, my reasoning, uh, be able to come up with an accurate, correct, forget complete, an mm -hmm. accurate and correct description of what's going on? It's It's ludicrous it's preposterous to think that it's completely arbitrary at least um, so i think the alternative if we realize that literal explanations can only go so far that we have no reason to believe that they will go much beyond a very modest uh, limit uh, uh, the alternative is okay if i can't literally describe what's going on but i still have access to my deeper mind uh, the part of my mind and the universe's mind that are beyond my ability to introspect, that are beyond my ability to, to metacognize. Uh, that part knows, it's not making models, it's not an intellect, but it knows directly because the universe is the image of its activity. Whatever is going on, it is a result of its activity. So there is a sense in which it knows. It doesn't know scientifically, it doesn't know literally, but it knows through direct apprehension, because it's the source from which the dynamics of everything are, are, are coming from. Uh, I think myths are, I don't want to use the word metaphor, myths are symbols mm -hmm. that point to that direct apprehension, that direct acquaintance with what's going on. 
that is beyond models. It precedes models in a way. Oh, the word beyond is faulty. This direct acquaintance precedes models. You know that part of mind knows directly. It's not. It, it can't tell itself what it is that it's going on. It cannot word it for itself. Mm. There is no metacognition there, but it it senses it because it is the source of it. I think myths capture this inner intuition that primitive peoples, uh, well, primitive, terrible word, preliterate peoples uh, had, or maybe even literate people, peoples that were not still taken over by the current Western cultural narrative that uh, basically implies that uh, the, the intellect is the only psychic function that has any value and everything else is an error. Uh, if you're not contaminated by that value system yet, um, you're in contact with your intuition, with a hint of that direct apprehension, and you capture that in the form of myths, which then help point to uh, that apprehension. And I think that's what many of the authentic religious myths out there and uh, cosmogonic myths uh, are, are, are pointing to, that direct apprehension that is beyond words, because words require metacognition and symbolic think uh, yeah, symbolic thinking, but now symbolic in a different way. You know what I mean? It's, uh, you've, I'm using the same word in different meanings here. Well, Bernardo, this has been a, a very informative, insightful, and even in inspiring conversation. Uh, I'm very grateful to have had this time with you. And uh, since you've written so much and have probed all of these topics deeply, I know we're just sort of scratching the surface of, uh, of your own thoughts. So I hope we'll be able to uh, continue the conversation in further interviews. I would gladly do that, Jeff. It, for me, it's a big honor to be here talking to you. I've watched your shows since the first series on PBS many years ago. Uh, it's uh, For me, it's peculiar to be here talking to you myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.